Hi, I'm Don Mackey, and welcome to the Pathways to Rural Prosperity podcast. This show is focused on providing strategies to empower community success and vitality. Each episode will feature interviews with cutting-edge rural development thought leaders and community practitioners, remarkable entrepreneurs from business, government, and nonprofits, and by sharing the learnings of E2 entrepreneurial ecosystems. Connect with me, learn more about E2, and subscribe to this show at energizingentrepreneurs.org. Welcome to this episode of Pathways to Rural Prosperity. This is Don Mackey with E2 Entrepreneurial Ecosystems, and I'll be your host today. Let me introduce you to my friend and colleague and co-worker, David Iaquinta. David, welcome to this episode of our podcast. Thank you very much, Don. It is a real pleasure to be here. Well, and we've had you before, so welcome back and really look forward to our conversation today focusing on community resiliency. And so one of the things I want to do is give you a little bit of chance just to kind of share a little bit of background about yourself, and then we're going to jump right into this concept of community resiliency. Well, great, Don. I am going to actually weave just a tiny segue in this to where we're going, because I think it's really instrumental. I'm a professor of sociology demography at Nebraska Wesleyan University. I've worked in universities most of my adult life, but I have always been involved in outside research and consulting in a variety of different environments. Importantly, in about 1999, I was a visiting scientist at United Nations Food and Agriculture. And relevant to this work is that's when I first really got embedded in the idea of peri-urban places that are both urban and rural, and yet neither of them. And this has been probably a 20-year pursuit for me. And we've done a lot of work around the world, a lot of it in developing countries, Asia, Latin America, Africa, a lot with my colleagues from Germany and the Philippines. But I've also worked in Germany and Tasmania. And the reason I highlight that is that I had puzzled ever since starting this work how it informs what we do in developed countries. And in particular, thinking about places like Nebraska, this great Midwest where we have this very rural environment, but it's not really exactly rural. These are people connected to urban society in every possible way. And how do we get information transfer? Tasmania was important. That was a place where I worked with vineyards, wine growers, I worked with recreational people. I worked in the newly emerging regenerative agriculture movement. And it was really seeing that there was an opportunity for, I didn't know what to call it at the time, but an entrepreneurial ecosystem. And one that operates beyond the bounds of a single city or village. And as we'll talk about in a little bit, we give that the word nanopolitan in our work. And it really emerges from this personal history of of work. So when you came to me several years ago and said, would I like to be part of gathering this story in Ord, I was excited. And now it's almost three, four years later. We had talked for years before that about various things. I can say I never imagined the amount I would learn and the energy that would be created for me through this work. So it's a real personal narrative tied to this. Yeah, and it's been a great journey. At times, you know, we had our curves in the road, but I think as folks get to know this story, 
it really is powerful and it should inspire folks to say, you know, we can have a better future in our corner of rural America or for that matter in the world. Just an editorial comment. I always get amused because we kind of have this arrogance at times that we can't learn from developing countries, yet some of the best learning has come from developing countries. Not only the work that you're talking about, but I think of Ernesto Zeroli's work with Enterprise Facilitation, which started in Africa. You know, let's continue to be learners. Well, let's jump in. So we use the term resiliency, and I'd like to give you a chance to kind of explain what that means to you and its implications for communities, their residents, ventures, and organizations in rural America. Yeah, resiliency has become kind of a trendy term these days. For those of us who have our educational roots in biology, it's old hat. (laughs) It's been around a long time in the study of ecosystems generally, typically biological in the first place. Resilience is just this ability of a system to be able to respond to shocks or changes in their context such that they can tolerate that. So too little rain, too much rain some sort of destabilizing event and or ranges of nutrients in the soil that they can operate within. Farmers are pretty used to thinking about this in a practical way. But it the case is that it isn't just biological systems, that we can talk about human systems. And those human systems can be individuals. And we talk about people being resilient. That is being able to get knocked flat and get up, dust themselves off and get back in the game. We see it on a basketball court with that player who comes back from bad play and their head is down and you know they're not being resilient at the moment. They need to get that head up and get back in the game. But communities too have resilience and institutions and they get kicked around. Can they make it? In our work, I would say I have characterized it really in sort of two ways. One is resilience that embodies not going over the waterfall, let's say, And that a community or an institution or a business or an individual is able to pivot, that is to make the accommodation or adjustment to not go over that waterfall. On the other hand, there is the reset. Sometimes you're going to go over that waterfall, but there's going to be a new system state. There's going to be a new arrangement. Can the community, can the individual, can the institution adjust to that reset? Can they act enough in advance. So really the resilience is both the ability to tell the difference, whether you're dealing with a pivot or a reset, and then to have the capacities to actually effect what needs to happen to be successful. I'll add one last point. There is some current research that actually introduces a goofy term called anti-fragility. They're really talking about creative destruction. And it's really about in a more common sense way, the glass is half full. That is actively seeking out change and destabilizing opportunities exactly because they do produce opportunity. And that the systems that are going to be successful, whether they're entrepreneurial or communities, are going to seek out some of those things that seem to be destabilizing, but in fact create real opportunity, real change. Yeah, neat. And I think one of the things you alluded to that we want to be sure and talk about is your more current work. 
I first started working with Ord, Nebraska, this community of 2,000 in a county of about 4,000 in a pretty rural area. But to your point, that's where you really fine-tune this concept of nanopolitan that you can talk more about in a bit. But, you know, and I was always amazed at the progress of Ord. I had good friends up there, but you know, in the late, oh, around 2017, 2018, I started taking a look at Ord again and go, holy cow, there has been transformative change. And of course, then we started this project and you've been part of it. A number of people have contributed to the writing. And a lot of this was done through the pandemic in terms of capturing this story. And so one of the things that you undertook last year as part of this project, but you also got some foundation support through the university to really go back to Ord, do some interviews, talk to folks that you had talked before, but also some other folks about how were they weathering the pandemic getting us. So just to get us started, can you share your three key takeaways from that work? And then we'll give you a chance to go deeper into the work that you did do. You know, I have to stress at the outset that I, I did not go in with a map of the way things are or how it works. Everything that came out of it was because in my trade, we would talk about it as qualitative research. I listened to people and then induced an understanding from their words. So the story I tell and what I'm sharing now is really the words of those people. It's just filtered back through a bit of an analytic lens, but it isn't my lens that put it on top of it. It was their words that activated that lens. And I reached out for frameworks to interpret what I was hearing. And I can say that really, what I'm sharing is I feel very confirmed. The people involved are beautiful people and their stories are remarkable. But if you ask about the key takeaways, the heart of the matter, I can't quite give you three, but I'll give you five. Okay. (laughs) That's fair. (laughs) Number one, we've already broached, and that is take an expanded, and the research would suggest this as well, regional focus, and then build your bonding and bridging social capital around that. What's unique, I think, in this pandemic story and the Ord story is usually we think of regional as, let's say, a large city, Omaha, a Lincoln, and then what's around that. But here we're talking at a very different scale. We're talking about a small place, 2,000 people. And yet it is that sense of themselves as interconnected to a surrounding region not as a predatory service center, but as an interactive partner in exchanges that people benefit both in that more rural fabric and in the local community and across to other communities. That's the nanopolitan. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was going to say is that's where you really coined this this term nanopolitan. And just for our listeners, you know, the census has this typology, non-metro, micropolitan, which are communities of less than 50,000, but more than 10, and then metropolitan. And of course, that goes from small metros up to your mega cities. And you felt there was a need for a classification in between that non-metro, which is a great way to refer to rural. It always rubs us raw and micropolitan. And so that's really kind of the origin behind that nanopolitan, isn't it? Yeah, it's exactly right. And and the unfortunate thing about not having a way to talk about it 
is we're left with the stereotypes that people have about rural. And those stereotypes both disadvantage in the way people outside of them see them, but it also disadvantages the people living there in terms of undercutting their own self-energizing potential. And so it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy in that way. And that was something that I carried from the developing countries. I mean, it was a sense of non-empowerment of communities because they have no identity. They're just disappeared into some abstraction called rural. And then every bad stereotype is invoked on that. So a second takeaway I would say at the heart of the matter is that the focus that comes out of this is focusing on both entrepreneurs themselves, not businesses, but entrepreneurs as central to this, but at the same time, an equal effort spent focusing on the entrepreneurial ecosystem, that it's really about the skill development for those entrepreneurs and the support system to help that happen, but it's also developing the embracing ecosystem system around them that sees itself as a totality, a central part of the whole endeavor. The third is embracing diversity and supporting all kinds and various entrepreneurial ventures, not just going after the whale. The community is going to has to accept that some things aren't going to make it, but they maximize their potential by having the widest variety of opportunity structures. And the way you get that is through diversity, different age groups, different identity groups, different entrepreneurial activities. And they aren't always and only exclusively what we would call private sector. They can be entrepreneurial in the social sector as well. And that's another kind of diversity. The fourth one would be to really, as part of that entrepreneurial ecosystem, to create a system of supportive, nurturing, mentoring that's capable of delivering what entrepreneurs need. People aren't born entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs is really about a certain passion or intensity of motivation that people have to create. And they may have a business plan, but they may still lack certain skills with respect to them. And so the ecosystem can provide that support system. We saw that in spades over and over again in Ord. We saw it in the original stories, but the pandemic showed me it in operation at the moment, in crisis, as the destabilizing event was happening, how did that system work? And you could visibly hear that ecosystem in people's voices. It was very clear. And I think people reading the paper will, will get that very clearly from it. The last one I'll say, and this one is often missed, and that is be intentional, but don't over-design. <laughs> Leave lots of room for serendipity and for incremental change. These are not magic bullets. These are not a single pill solution. These are processes that take give and take. They're processes that inch along, leap along. They go forward. They go backward a little bit. They go sideways. But it's a learning process. It's a self. It's an emergent process. And so as entrepreneurs... They need to be allowed and afforded opportunities to fail, to adjust, to respond. That is to be resilient within a system of constant change and adaptation. The ecosystem, again, can be supportive of that. And in ORD, I think one of the key mechanisms for that has been the low interest sales tax loan program, which provided not 
it didn't substitute for an entrepreneur's capital base and it didn't substitute for the bank's ability to loan. It filled that interstice between them that we sometimes call gap funding, but not like the gap that you put between the two layers of the cake, but the gap that gives it resilience. That is, they're not always working at the margin on Friday. They have a little give in the system so they can do that experimentation, so they can learn and process. Those would be the five things. You can see they're interconnected, but those are my five real takeaways. Yeah, and I think your last point, just to add to it, David, is we looked at 100 different deals they financed through their low-interest loan program. Well, not necessarily low-interest loan program, but their gap financing program. And two things were really clear. 80% of the deals they financed were with what we would call non-traditional entrepreneurs, people who 10 years ago probably wouldn't have gotten supported in the community, women, newcomers, young people, people of color. And the second thing is, to your point, that's so powerful. When we looked at those deals, the community understood that if you cut the deal too tightly, the probability of failure really goes up. And so they did build resiliency into not only the funding, but the technical assistance support, mentoring, counseling, et cetera. And that's why you find you know, within that total portfolio of finance deals, very little failure. Now, was there small failure, but there wasn't the catastrophic failure where the business went asunder and the entrepreneurs were destroyed. Well, I want to I want to pivot a little bit because I think this is really important. So you've been getting to know this community for some time. You did a set of interviews. You've been up in the community. COVID continued to be a real challenge. And then you did a second set of interviews. And I think when our audience begins to read those interviews, look at the more detailed content, and we really encourage it. Some of it's raw, it's real, it's genuine. It, it truly gives you a sense of not only how these individuals were being stressed during this period of pandemic and shutdown and the need to make changes, but also how the community supported them and how they supported each other. And so share a little bit about your methodology because you were able to build a trusting relationship where people were motivated and willing to be very, very candid with you, which means this research is so substantial in terms of what it can tell us. This falls in the category of qualitative research, interviewing, which doesn't really capture what the experience is. I was extremely fortunate on two bases, I think, well, three. One, I could build all of my approach and thinking on more than two decades of fantastic economic research that you had done in your history of working with ORD. I mean, that really created a factual base for me to understand the fundamental reality of ORD and things that they've confronted. The second was that by collecting those initial round of stories, I was already able to have established a sense of trust. People saw the stories that I wrote based on their narratives. They saw the interpretations that I used to frame what they were saying. And I gave them all opportunities to look at those and be comfortable with them. And even when they were 
oh, I won't say unflattering, but where they showed blemishes in people, difficult things, personally hard things, they were very accepting that that was part of the story. They weren't willing to shy away from being who they are and letting me tell those stories. And I think that went a long way to them feeling comfortable in this extremely stressful time. And it allowed me then to reach out to new respondents. And I have to believe that some of that capital that had been established bled over in a community way, a small community, to people being responsive. And I think that's the third thing. I I had a tremendous advantage in having a couple of the key players in the community be there to open a door or authenticate that I was a good guy. You know, I wasn't out to play gotcha on anything. I just wanted to understand their story and help them tell their story. So that's the methodology. A lot of it was done face-to-face. Sometimes I had to do it uh, Zoom interviews. There are advantages and disadvantages to each, but people are busy and sometimes it, it was just more convenient. In a few cases, I had to go back and I'd already established the personal relationship and interview. So I went back with Zoom to clarify some things or try it out. And again, I let everybody in the community read the entire the entirety of the process. And I will say that any any critiques that came forward were wholly justified and really helpful. That is to say, they really got their story told rather than me telling what I thought their story was. And I also think in feedback from several of them that it was the first time they could see their collective story in a way that really reaffirmed what they sort of knew and felt, but didn't have this embraceive view. So I could bring an outside perspective in a way that could help make things even clearer for them. And I, I got very positive feedback on that. So I think the methodology was really solid. I stand behind it as a social scientist, but I, I more importantly, I stand behind it as a, a community development practitioner, as as someone who actually wants people to tell their own stories. So that's really it. I reached out in the second interviews, though, beyond the entrepreneurial community, especially to engage people in the public sector, if you will. I spoke with the mayor. I spoke with the librarian. I spoke with JJ, the DJ at the radio station. I spoke with Heather Nebesniak, superintendent of schools, Doug Smith, the elementary school principal, another mental health professional, first name is escaping me at the moment, I'm sorry. I spoke with as many different characters and representatives in the community as I could to gather these stories, and also all those that I had interviewed the first time. If I were to tell you the thing that was most striking to me was, and I think you alluded to this, was not just their talking about the stress with the business, but how open people were willing to be about the emotional experience that they were having personally and in their families and in their communities. And sometimes that really showed very clearly how they acted. And I just referenced Doug Smith. Again and again, as as the elementary school principal, there was a sense that they didn't know what was going on, so they were just trying to figure it out. But his underlying idea and the ethos of 
believing that when dealing with children in any capacity, we'll just ord them up. That was his phrase. We'll just ord <laughs> them up. And, and his other phrase was, we'll just love them through it. And it sounds so trite, but it's so true. Trust, love, that's the basis of what came through over and over. And I felt that in those stories. And that's part of what I've tried to communicate even inside this more sort of analytic framework of talking about human capital and social capital and natural capital and built capital, these capacities that individuals, institutions, and communities have. But the solutions that Doug was finding to institutional problems, they bled out into the community like a bromide that really just like a like slow drip agriculture just relieved stress throughout the community. And, and no one is pointing a finger saying that's what you're doing. And yet you could very clearly through the voices and the response of the people see that's what was happening. So even if people don't consciously recognize it in some ways, they're experiencing it in a visceral way in their daily life. These are remarkable stories. Well, and for our viewers, we're going to remind you of the podcast we did with David around leadership and resident agency, because these two topics are related. Before this crisis ever hit, this community had began to invest in its leadership and its residents, create a culture. And I think that is part of what you're capturing in this work. David, we got time for one more topic, and then we're going to have to wrap up and talk about the resources. But I want to give our listeners a preview of a resource that we are going to be sharing in May of 2022. It is a web-based learning platform using the Articulate 360 technology, and the platform is organized around a set of courses capturing the complete and total Ord story capture work. And if I remember right, course four focuses on resiliency and really kind of lays out the detail and the richness of the work that you did on this topic. And so you want to just share a little bit about the Articulate 360 and uh, particularly the course that you helped put together, but you were involved in the whole project with Elizabeth and the rest of the team. And pretty soon folks are going to be able to get up on our website, connect to that and begin to use that resource. I would preface it by saying that there is nothing about this resource that is the blueprint or the way to do things. This is a way for people to connect with a successful community's trajectory and the way they revisited who they were and built a different future for themselves very intentionally. But it does it in a way that a community is encouraged step by step to engage themselves in the process of not reproducing the exact mechanisms that were used in ORD, but taking those examples and reformulating them with their own needs, with their own context. So students, individuals, entrepreneurs, community leaders, hopefully in small groups, will access pieces of this, each of the courses, and in it, they will go through some self-reflection, some sharing, and coming to common ground, understanding what shared interests they have in the community, 
what their highest intentions are, not just for their own business or their own institution or their own family, but for the community as well. And then beginning the exploration of where there are untapped capacities, where there are gaps in their entrepreneurial system, where they can build better bonding social capital in the community, where they can look to build bridging social capital with organizations, support systems outside the community. E2, Network Kansas, Nebraska Community Foundation, sometimes government sources, et cetera. And then really to develop an action plan. And this is step by step. So when they get to that resiliency piece, they should have gone through at least three of these sorts of exercises. And they can really then think about what they've been trying to build, what they have been building, and think about it in terms of resiliency. How do we make sure that we don't just have a product for today, but we have a mechanism that continues to develop so that we can take advantage of new opportunities or challenges. And there are two different things there. The pandemic was a challenge, but when you view some of the outcomes, it looked like it was an opportunity for new ways to see things. And the hope would be, and this is that anti-fragility, that ultimately a community gets to the point where they're no longer even just thinking about how we're gonna adapt if there's a crisis, but how can we go out and find a little bit of crisis to shake ourselves up to be something more without sacrificing who we are? Maintain our culture, maintain our identity, but build on it and grow from it and be dynamic, always reaching, always searching, just like a young child wanting to learn, wanting to learn, wanting to grow. Great, David. Well, you know, as was the case before, our time is up. This always goes fast. There's so much more we could cover, but I just want to thank you for, again, making time to share with us, but also being part of this Ord Story Capture team and work. We really do believe that it's a resource that could really have impact across rural America and maybe beyond if others are interested. So thank you for being my guest today. You're very, very welcome, Don, and I second everything you just said, and I truly hope people will take a look at it and find it useful, and if they have suggestions, we're happy to embrace them. You bet. Well, folks, as we wrap up, let me remind you of some of the resources that will be available as part of this podcast. Of course, there's our standard resources. Your first stop always is to go to our website, energizingentrepreneurs.org. There's a whole set of free resources there that you can access. You can join our National Practitioners Network and access the entire resource package around how you can grow an entrepreneurial community and build an entrepreneurial ecosystem. There's our monthly electronic newsletter. These are all free where you can get the latest news, the latest information on what's available, either content that we've generated or that we've gathered, and then, of course, our podcast, Pathways to Rural Prosperity. Particular to our conversation today with David, two things we're going to be making available. One is a shorter piece called Weathering the Pandemic in Ord, and then the longer research piece that David put together, Resiliency and Community Entrepreneurial Ecosystem Building. And I actually got those turned around, so we'll make both of those available. And then in May, you'll be able to access the Ord story through the web-based learning platform that David and I just talked about. So on behalf of David and I and our entire network at E2 Entrepreneurial Ecosystems, 
All our best to you, our listeners, and your efforts to grow a stronger rural America, one community at a time. Thanks and take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Pathways to Rural Prosperity podcast. Head on over to energizingentrepreneurs.org where you can subscribe to this podcast and tap into more than 25 years of field experience from E2 Entrepreneurial Ecosystems. I'm Don Mackey, and I'll see you next time on Pathways to Rural Prosperity podcast. Mm -hmm.